At CD Media, we are literally the tip of the spear. From Ukraine to the vaccine to Brazil, we've been at the tip of the spear on all these stories early. So if you want to know what's going on in the world early, before the rest of the news catches up, watch CD Media. But you know what? We have to make money. So we do have ads on the sites. But I know people don't like pop-up ads. They don't like ads. It's a problem. I mean, you get them on your phone, et cetera. If you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no ad subscription, which is a few bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites, not just CD Media, but the Manhattan, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, Armed Forces Press, Tsarism overseas in Eastern Europe, and CDM Espanol if you speak Spanish. So all of these sites are available with no ads. So sign up for our no ad subscription. You can find it on the websites. There's a pop-up and also in the top menu. And, and pay us a few bucks a month, support free media, support your children's future, support the fight against the corrupt media narrative. Thank you very much. And now let's get to our guest. So welcome everybody. Uh, this is our global conversation in plain sight. And today we have Dr. Andrew Huff with us. He is the author of the new book, The Truth About Wuhan, how he uncovered the biggest lie in history has to do with COVID-19. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Well, now this is this is this book is quite something. It's explosive. You you don't hold any punches on this one. You have gotten into it. You you give your background. It's basically to me it's it's three parts. You give your background uh, in great great detail. You are a bioweapon expert, correct? Bioweapons, biowarfare, bioterrorism. All right. So you you're you're a vet. Uh, thank you for your service and. You um, have worked, now tell us about the work you did at the lab. Uh, the, well, so many laboratories. I think you're referring to Sandia National Laboratories? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was hired as a senior member of the technical staff. I worked in a complex modeling and simulation group where I worked on all sorts of doomsday events and I was the resident public health and biological expert for responding or planning or mitigating these types of disasters. I also was matrixed uh, into other aspects of the classified world of bio and national security and defense. And, and that's all I can say. Which, of course, you can't talk about that. Um, so did you do that work before you applied to Eco Alliance? I did. It was just essentially a continuation of the work that I had been doing at uh, the University of Minnesota as a research fellow, also while I was a PhD student. Um, so I was a I think my title was a research fellow at the National Center for Food Protection Defense, which was the Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence. That's such a mouthful. That is a mouthful, but that's it's, typical bureaucracy. Okay, yeah. so then around 2014, you applied for a position with Eco Alliance. Tell us some history about Eco Alliance and why you applied. Well, when I, I think it makes more sense in the context of why I left the laboratory. So as at 
Sandia National Laboratories. I was getting sick of all my work being classified. Uh, the funding for some of my work was drying up. And I realized that if I didn't escape the national laboratory system, that I would be stuck there forever as a scientist, because if your work keeps getting classified, you can't tell anyone about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I made the decision that I just wanted to get away from national security and defense. So I started looking for positions and I found this really interesting organization called Eco Health Alliance that had the stated mission of basically conducting or saying that they were engaging in conservation work uh, to protect the environment, to prevent emerging infectious diseases, which has face validity. Uh, when I came to work at Eco Health Alliance over time, I figured out that was far from the case. Okay, so so let, let's just start with the basics here, because I, I want people to understand uh, and grasp this. EcoHealth Alliance, tell us the history of that. Um, EcoHealth Alliance was actually uh, a nonprofit organization that was failing um, prior to, I want to say, like 2006 or seven, And then Dr. Peter Daszak took over the organization and rebranded it as EcoHealth Alliance with this mission. Uh, most of the money that EcoHealth Alliance initially received was from a program called uh, USAID Predict, United States Agency for International Development. So they do all sorts of good things around the world. And what they were telling people they were going to do was that they were going to go around the world collecting uh, viral samples to predict and forecast and prevent the next pandemic. Uh, what I learned was that, that was far from reality. All right, but let's let before we get to that. So, so when you joined, you joined them in 2014. You worked there to 2016. You clearly, um, you had your issues with Peter Daszak in the book. He is, um, he he's he's well known. Um, he's been in the international field and he's been in the health field and the science field for a long period of time. He also um, is the person who was appointed by Jeffrey Sachs for the coronavirus, for to head up one of the coronavirus task force, focusing on the origin of the coronavirus. And I, the value of this this book is 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 that it it is your witness to what you claim is the origin of the coronavirus. Oh, ab absolutely. I'm. I'm All right, and you're and you're saying you're saying ground zero begins and ends with taking a deep dive into EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Daszak, and a whole robust group of people who are involved in hunting for coronaviruses? Well, hunting for coronaviruses, not only coronaviruses, but it was one of the core areas of virus that uh, the PREDICT program focused on, as well as the other uh, biosurveillance or viral sampling efforts at EcoHealth Alliance. I, I think um, what has happened over the past two years, the way that the media um, and both Congress and the Senate have shaped the narrative or the discussion around EcoHealth Alliance, it really, there's a really, there's a lot more that could be said, meaning that EcoHealth Alliance is a business, uh, it's a nonprofit business, but from EcoHealth Alliance's perspective, they leverage the funding from numerous different private donors contracts or grants to essentially do the same type of work over and over and over again at scale. So oftentimes- well, well, What exactly is that work? I mean, what is their business model and what is it that they actually do? Well, they're in the, I'd say they're in the, well, there, there's two, two, two different, I guess, ways to look at this. There's what they say, what they do and what they actually do. Well, 
let, let's start with what do they say that they do and let's move to what they actually do. Well, they tell everyone that they're conducting scientific research, uh, biosurveillance to protect the environment and wildlife. There's okay. so but when I, what, what do they actually do? Well, they're out collecting biological samples to collect intelligence for different agencies for the U.S. government. Then they leverage that intellectual property to conduct various gain-of-function research experiments to make medical countermeasures, um, also known as, they say vaccines, but the mRNA pl platform is technically a gene therapy. But they're, they're at, that's what the business model is. They're actually uh, going out and collecting viral samples, doing genetic engineering work, and then monetizing it. All right. So, so did you know that going in there? I had no idea. I so did people uh, once you got, but once you got inside, it was it was common knowledge among the staff. No, it was not college common knowledge even among the staff. I actually put the pieces. I have a fly buzzing around. Um, I put the pieces together probably about a year after I started working there because I'm hired as a senior scientist for the the data and technology department and. I didn't receive the full details even about what I was going to be doing. Um, I really essentially learned that I'm going to be doing a lot of department defense intelligence work like I was doing before at Sandia National Laboratories. That's the irony of this. And because of that, I end up crushing it. I, I bring in about $6 million in the first year that I'm there. And then as I'm promoted to vice president, I get to see under the hood of everything else that's going on at the organization. And that's when I start putting it all together. So in your book, you talk about how that you had actually worked on some of this work relative to the PREDICT project at USAID. Absolutely. So actually, so tell, tell us tell us what they do, because I mean, was this a joint venture between Eco Health Alliance and the PREDICT project and, and the Wuhan laboratory? So under PREDICT, there are a consortium of partners. The primary lead partners were UC Davis, a company. You see, don't talk in acronyms because you don't assume oh, the public yeah. understands. It's the sure. University of California at Davis. Yes. Well, and that's also the academic, uh, my academic side. The PhDs are always whipping out university acronyms uh, quickly. So University of California, Davis, uh, a company out of San Francisco called Metabiota. Uh, that's run by Dr. Nathan Wolf. He wrote a, a book about viruses, a famous one. Um, and then Dr. Peter Daszak runs uh, Equal Health Alliance. These three organizations came together to form the consortium of partners for PREDICT. There are a couple other smaller partners under PREDICT. Uh, the Smithsonian, I think, um, one of the major wildlife foundations, as I recall. I don't remember which one. And they, they played a lesser role, uh, more of supporting and networking. And through this consortium of partners, they basically carved up the planet into uh, 30 or 35 different locations where they would conduct this viral surveillance work. They'd go into the field and they would sample primarily bats, uh, taking saliva, fecal, um, or other samples, blood, blood samples from the animals, bring those back to the laboratory where then they would do uh, viral isolation work. That viral isolation work took place at Columbia University in Dr. Ian Lipkin's laboratory. After the viral isolation work was complete, completed, then it would go to Dr. Ralph Barrick's laboratory at the and University. Explain, explain to Ralph Barrick is. Yeah, so Dr. Ralph Barrick is a genius. He is uh, the pioneer of gain of function techniques. So there are many people who work in gain of function research. 
Dr. Barrick is the world's best virologist in this niche. So and the, and the purpose, the, the purpose of, of explain to people, because, you know, people throw around gain of function. What is gain of function in Dr. Fauci's deposition that was taken a couple of weeks ago? He basically was was um, deflecting and saying he couldn't really he couldn't really define gain of function because it's complex. So give layman's terms what it is so people understand. Well, Dr. Fauci is such a terrible liar. The simplest way of describing gain of function is this. It's anytime you change the function of a virus. And that's a very broad, or, or an infectious agent, actually. That's a very broad definition. And then typically, if you're a nerd like I am, we go on to say you're enhancing the infectivity of the agent, the transmissibility, the environmental persistence. One of the characteristics that we'd use that actually fit uh, augments or modifies a measurable trait or characteristic of how the disease survives in the population or affects the individual. All right. So, so why do people play with this Frankenstein science? What, what's the purpose of going out and finding the viruses, taking them to a lab, making them more, I, I guess, dangerous and figuring out how to transmit it to human beings? What is the purpose of this? Um, there, there isn't one in my opinion, but I'll give you both sides of the, the, the argument. So this, this debate really erupts in 2005 and 2006 with current concerns related to biowarfare and bioterror in this concept called dual use research of concerns. So because there's a weak biologic weapons convention um, left over from the 70s that's not enforceable, every country in the planet is left to do this gain of function research for peaceful purposes. But the concern is, you know, after you do this engineering work on it, you could also use use a weapon. So that's what when people ask whether COVID is a bioweapon or if this is gain of function work, that's what this debate's really about. Now, because um, it, it, and when they say dual purpose, so basically it's the dark side or the good side of life. Yes, and I, I have a good analogy I can come back to in a second, but I didn't <laughs> answer the first part of your question. So the the logical argument that people make is that by doing gain of function work we can get ahead of the naturally circulating diseases so that we can make a countermeasure or a treatment or a vaccine to mitigate the effects of this future disease that we're facing usually it's in, it, within the the confines or timeline of one year is what they use in reality what happens is that they evolve these infectious diseases 150, 200,000 years into the future in the laboratory, they have species mixing with each other that would never mix in, would be very unlikely to mix in the natural ecosystem and diseases coming into contact with each other that, that won't, they won't necessarily uh, come into contact with, with each other either. So there's a lot of unlikely improbable things happening in the laboratory for this false premise that we're going to be able to make a medical countermeasure to get ahead of it. And that's actually why I've been against gain of function since I was a PhD student. Once I figured out and really understood what it was after probably about three, four months into my studies, I, I couldn't, couldn't understand why we're doing it. There, there is one exception where I think it is, where gain of function is acceptable, is for the development of live atten attenuated vaccines. As long as they're only doing it one step into the future for an agent that, that naturally circulates, a, a natural agent, not something that's man-made. So th there's a lot of questions, okay? So th this, this is dangerous work. It's dangerous science. Is it regulated, first of all? Yes, it is regulated. The problem is- 
under under what authority is it regulated? Well, it depends. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it it is it is either regulated or it's not regulated. Well, <clears throat> let me. Is there an international accord? So I, I think I can answer the question in a way that you'll understand. There is nothing preventing you from going and buying a CRISPR kit and finding an infectious agent that you want to work on and doing this work in your garage yourself. Okay, so so in other words, in other words, you know, uh, anybody from the dark side of life could 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 do this, and it would not be a crime. First of all, but is it regulated? I mean, we've got nuclear accords. Is this reg? I mean, well, to me, if this can cause, if this can cause a pandemic, then it should be regulated. Where the, the definitions are silly, whether or not it's legal, because if you were doing the gain of function work in your garage with a nefarious intent to harm each other, uh, harm others, it would be illegal because you'd be subject to Homeland Security presidential directives, and then it would be illegal. Now, if you were doing that because you're telling the world that you wanted to make an E. coli uh, less harmful, but you wanted the E. coli to exist, it could still be gain of function work, but it was your intent of how you were using it. And this is my problem with the legal framework that we have for regulating this. It really depends on what the person says, how they're going to use it. And that's a lot of trust if you ask me. Because what happens in the understanding the risk of back coronavirus emergence proposal that is ultimately funded and mismanaged that I reviewed while I was at Equal Alliance, they circumvent the rules that I just explained on something called a select agent form to enable them to do this work without the proper regulatory oversight. All right. So, 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 so Andrew, let, let's back up. When did, when did the world decide that they were going to get into this work? What's the history of, of, of going out to bat caves in 30 countries uh, and, and fooling around with this through gain of function to see if these viruses are transmissible to human beings to harm them? Well, I don't know everything in the world. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, I think the the bat research actually really picks up where where bats are identified as a reservoir for. No, but what year? What year are we talking about? Um, so, no, I don't think most 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 of the people on Earth understand the Predict project. It came so to my that, attention that, in early 2020 because the group of people that you're talking about who are involved with gain of function are the people who authored the Lancet February 2020 article. And they concluded at the very beginning that this was not created in a lab. Your premise is that this was created in the Wuhan lab. That's the premise of your of your book. Okay. Mm -hmm. So and, and these people were all involved. So they came to my attention because I thought it was too soon for anybody to conclude because there hadn't been an investigation. And then we later found out that Jeffrey Sachs, who headed up the Lancet Commission, and he had his 11 task force, and one of them was on the finding out the origin, um, which everybody bought into, because that it, it needs, if, if this is going to happen again, we need to find out what the origin of this was. But Dasik was appointed as the head of that task force, and Jeffrey Sachs has now come out publicly and said that 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 everybody that he chose, that Dasik chose to be on that task force, that he led, four sacks lied and and basically studiously did not want to take a look at was this a lab leak 
So he has come out and criticized that. And they have determined in the Lancet Commission that we really don't know. And what you're saying is these people do know they were involved. And this was done at the Wuhan lab. So let's get into how did you come to conclude this and put it in the book? Because you you are not holding back on this. No, it's based on a, a number. Of, so the, the interesting thing about my career, I'm trained as an FBI criminal epidemiologic investigator. There's not too many of us. And um, some of us who work in the field of epidemiologists who work in the field of bioterror, biosecurity, you have to learn how to, to treat these like criminal events because when they occur, you're, you don't know whether or not they're natural emerging, uh, naturally emerging or human caused. So you have to collect the evidence like it is a crime to investigate. And that's essentially what I began to do throughout this process. So first I become aware of uh, SARS-CoV-2's emergence in Wuhan in mid-December, mid 2019. That's about a week and a half before the other epidemiologists in my, my field find catch wind about it. How did and you find How did you find out about it? So I was just snooping around on different forums, um, like I always do, RSSS feeds, uh, basically running web scraping tools, looking for chatter related to infectious diseases. These are the type of platforms that I used to build for the Department of Defense and other three-letter agencies. So I had some of the stuff running and I had chatter pop up related to um, a potential disease event in China. Well, I go snooping around more and I start seeing crazy videos of them sticking people with needles in the street, people panicking and you know, just I'm like, well, this is weird. This really looks like something's going on here. And you looked at, you looked at, to see, and uh, you mentioned this in the book, you also looked at some platform, which is way above my pay grade of understanding it, but figuring out um, if their bodies are being cremated. Yeah, so th that was the, ne the next step. So after I sort of become aware of that, it's likely based on what I'm seeing in the media that there's something happening here. Mm -hmm. um, I decided to go pull, pull particulate matter data. So, so people in, who work in health intelligence know that when crematoriums run, that they put a lot of air pollution into the air. So PM 2.5 is commonly monitored all across of China because of the mm -hmm. severe air pollution there. And it's easy open source data, which is publicly available. So I, I start pulling these data and then putting into a, a system, which I have a master's degree in understanding called the geographic information system, which is like a Google map on steroids and then start running plume dispersion models to see if this can be attributed to point source emissions. All right, all right, all right. That's that's, that's scientific language. You got to keep you got to keep it to yes. the okay, language. So simply, there, there were plumes. There were plumes of ash coming from crematoriums in, in and around Wuhan. All right, so that's December 2019 that you knew something was going on in Wuhan. Then then later on, the WHO comes out, the, 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 some type of uh, genetic or uh, recipe, I'm just going to use the word, was put out there to the to the public. And then what, what happened to you? Your lights went on and you said, oh, my gosh. And then how did you connect it back to the Eco Alliance? And this is, you know, this is several years later after you left because you were only there for two years. Yes. Well, I, I, I tend to, I have a good memory. People have said that about me. So the one thing I remember is that we had all the research going on, the gain of function work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. While and, at Eco Health Alliance while you were there. Correct. Okay. Um, I break that apart in the book and I explain that in detail, the gain of function work we we're doing and how it was no secret. And we were discussing it in the open when I worked there. I mean, it was, and it was do, do your colleagues, your former colleagues, do, do they agree with your assessment on this? I mean, I, when, once they're put under oath, I don't know how they're not going to agree with it because there can only be one truth here. And I already gave my statements under oath with penalty of perjury in a deposition and in, in written testimony to both the Congress and, and the Senate.
I mean, this is clearly fun. Clearly, no, you haven't done it in person. You've done you have you or did you not did in person you? because they, they don't want me to come? I don't think. Well, all right. Well, but you've written you've written it. Okay. Yes. And, 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 and I have it. And uh, hold, hold, hold on, Andrew. Hold on. Okay. So, so I, I just want to know the, the the you didn't like Peter Daszak. You make that clear in the book. But at the same I time, did like it, I did like him initially. Peter and I got along very well, and there were, there were a lot of strengths that I saw in Peter. I thought he was an excellent writer. I thought he was, uh, he had incredible strategy. He was good at working, made this the psych, which I, what I later identify as psychopathy, but he was great at organizing and structuring things socially. Well, Andrew, in the book, you call him a liar. Well, he, things change over time. All right, well, so, so let, let's be clear about this. You may yeah. have liked him initially, that's why you went to work there, but you call him a liar today, all right? So, so so he he has heard about your, I'm, I'm just going to say it's a theory, okay, uh, or your position, I should call it. Yeah. And and that he has come out publicly and said that you never worked at the Wuhan lab. All right. You don't make and he says that you claim that you do. I didn't find in the book that you ever claimed that you worked at the Wuhan lab. No, I didn't. And that was a misprint by the New York Post. So I don't know if that was the New York uh, Post trying to be cheeky and trying to smear me to begin with. And they got it wrong. But for some, somehow, with the New York Post, without speaking to me, publishes an article, and this is the one that breaks my story, essentially, that I claimed that I had worked at the Wuhan lab, which I, I've never said. You, you never did, and you didn't in the book. But having, having said that, Peter's now denying that they had anything to do with the origin of COVID-19. Well, they, they can. They're, they're free to do that, but all the, the science indicates otherwise. All right. So but when you were at the EcoHealth Alliance, you, in fact, did work on some of the predict projects that EcoHealth Alliance was involved with, correct? Oh, absolutely. And I also wrote the uh, the, the humanized mouse gain of function proposal to with, with Peter to Incutel. I also reviewed the understanding the uh, I reviewed the understanding that the the risk of back coronavirus emergence proposal. So I was involved with a lot of different projects. Not that I necessarily drew pay for every one of them, but as the only quantitative epi card carrying epidemiologist at the time at the organization, you, you, I was you, you think they'd rely on me for a lot of the things because that was the work they were doing. So why is it that they didn't have more of yous uh, with your with your experience on staff? How, how many people were on staff at this company? First of all. Oh, when I first started, I grew the, the company. So when I was there, my impression was 25 people. Um, and then when, when I was successful, I probably increased that to maybe 40 at the company. And then of PhDs um, in this field, I was the only one. Uh, there were veterinarians. So John Epstein was a veterinarian. Uh, Billy Koresh is a veterinarian. Um, Peter Daszak is a parasitologist. Mm -hmm. And um, who am I forgetting? So yeah, Billy, um, Kevin Oliveau is a, a disease ecologist. So he'd be the next closest thing. And actually my field of public health and his field of disease ecology has some crossover. And then there were a number. So I, I do know that for, for a fact that John later completed a PhD in epidemiology. He was doing it from one of the, the distant schools in the UK while I worked at EcoHealth. So there, there were a lot of people playing catch up on these degrees while I worked there. So, so, so there's a consortium of different scientists who in fact uh, collaborated on the contract for the PREDICT project. 
Is that the way we say this? I mean, how, how, how do you describe this work? Who was who the lead, the PREDICT project or EcoHealth Alliance and the consortium? Well, the government puts out the request for proposals or applications. So the government's asking for the work to be done. All right. And, so this is this is our U.S. government. And what, what, what agency is putting out? Well, the, the USAID put, puts out the PREDICT work. The interesting thing is that once I was actually assigned to the PREDICT program, it was heavily micromanaged by the State Department. And I had never seen anything like the micromanagement. Why would, why would State, De State Department, which division at State Department was doing this? Because USAID comes under State Department. Typically the missions. So the diplomatic. When you say that, when you say the missions, you're talking about the the U.S. embassies overseas because you sure. you you guys are doing this overseas in about thirty countries, correct? And then you're going through the U.S. embassies. Yes, correct. And who are these people? Who are the attaches at, at the embassies? What what's their position? Usually the ambassador or the deputy. So the U.S. ambassadors or the deputies know what's going on. Are the in which what where where's what countries are, are these projects in? Well, I mean, I, it was Southeast I, Asia, I, Latin America, uh, Thailand, Jordan, Sudan. There, there's a strong contingent in North Africa, the Middle East. Latin America was pretty lightly represented, but mostly Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East. And, and obviously China. China, correct. All right, so. And is it just the U.S. government that's putting money into it? Because I thought I read someplace that other foreign governments are putting money into this PREDICT pro program. Well, that's a very interesting question. So each one of the organizations, so Metabiota, University of California, Davis, and EcoHealth, um, my presumption is that each one had their own set of wealthy or high wealth individual donors. We certainly did an EcoHealth Alliance to fund our work. We also had the, the world's largest private foundations uh, funding our work or supporting it in other ways. And then we also- Start, name, start naming names, because I can hear the audience saying, well, which, which foundations, which- sure, so I can only speak to EcoHealth, but what I know for a fact. So uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, the Welcome Trust, we had a data sharing agreement. And I believe that's why Jeremy Farrar is tied in with all these conversations with Anthony Fauci and the Fauci emails. Because so, because uh, Farrar runs the Welcome Trust. Yes. Yes. Okay. What yeah. are, what, name some more. Name some more. Well, the, the data sharing agreement is important, though, because the data is actually the biological material or the genetics of the agents. Uh, the Google so found. That's the re so let's back up. That is the result of going out there and finding these viruses. So there's a, there's a qualitative, quantitative uh, supply that 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 not monetized, but I mean it's it's a bank, it's a data bank. But name, my, go my, back, go back, Andrew, and name who these people are. You got the welcome. Is the Gates Foundation involved? They're in the background continuously, but they didn't. As far as I'm aware, they didn't. Um, directly provide any funding to EcoHealth Alliance. They were always involved with all the partners though. Um, I ended up consulting on an unrelated issue for the Gates Foundation. And I don't know if I was selected because of my ties to these people, because um, like I said, I, I was very much being groomed to be one of these people in my career. So I ended up working with them. It's a little bit of, little, little bit of a tangent, but- I wanna know, let's focus just on the PREDICT project who, and, yeah. and EcoHealth Alliance. There, are, when, you, when you name, was the Ford Foundation involved? I never saw the Ford Foundation come up. Um, 
So I already got the Google Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the Skoll Foundation uh, was involved, the Rockefeller Foundation. Those are the ones that where I have hard proof in my documents that I released on Twitter that people can go download and look at. So, so when when these people came to the table, did those foundations know that they were contributing to the Eco Health Alliance that was into the gain of function business? I think so. Because Peter Daszak was always pitching and selling this research quite openly for years to different at different presentations or uh, high wealth net or high net individual net worth individual groups or presentations. Um, I personally gave donors at billionaires' houses in, in tech in, in Silicon Valley. So I, I, the assumption is that they know, and I think our board of so directors. So you mentioned it. You mentioned you mentioned in the book that uh, the Chinese Batwoman um, that everybody you know talks about, as well as uh, Barrick came and pitched to you guys, gave lectures at Eco Health Alliance. Were donors in the room at that time? No, those were formerly just just pure scientific uh, lunchtime meetings. In academia, there's a tradition when you have visiting scholars at your organization or institute that they okay. give scientific presentations during lunch. All so, right, all right. So, so there's no donors in the room. That's the answer to the question. No, 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 no donors no. in the room. So who, who are the people that were at EcoHealth Alliance that would pitch to people in Silicon Valley and at these foundations? Well, I was one. All the scientists, um, Dr. Oloval, Dr. Dasik, they like to say- so, so when you attended those, those, those meetings for the pitch, gain of function was mentioned. Not so much when I was presenting because I was pre uh, presenting. I'm not asking about your presentation, Dr. Huff. I'm asking you if you if you witnessed the pitch of gain and function for for money with donors who ended up giving money to Eco Health Alliance. Mm, I don't recall if the gain of function was in the pre couple of presentations that I saw from the other scientists because I didn't always necessarily present with the other scientists. Okay, so so um, how do you know the gain of function that 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 possibly these donors would know that there was gain of function. I mean, what was the pitch? I mean, they wanted well, to sure. get so there, there, There's not necessarily the pitch. There's also the, so you can go look at the peer reviewed publications that have been published and then look at who they reference as funding the work. So if you go look at the peer reviewed publications published from Equal Health Alliance and their scientists from 2014 to today, they list their funding sources. And some of those publications are gain of function work. Okay. And then, and then also, so, so if, so I guess you're, you're basically saying that everybody was in the know on this. Absolutely. And that's, that's what the insanity of this whole story is, is that this was gain of function work out in the open conducted into and why there's any debate around it is just insane to me and i understand why there's a debate around it what the u.s government and the covid co-conspirators did along with the chinese is that they made this such a um detailed discussion about virology in science that nobody can understand it and really oh, it's because it might not and may not have a foundation too i mean it might might be so dangerous that it that people would i mean at one point in time during the obama administration there was, there was, I think it was 2012, there was supposed to be a ban on doing this type of research. With a small exception for Anthony Fauci. Was it Anthony Fauci or was it Richard Barrick? Well, I believe it was directed when it, in the bottom of the document, if I, my memory could be off here, but at the bottom of the document, I thought it said the director of NIAID, which would be 
All right. So the assumption is when the Senator Rand um, has had Anthony Fauci before him and he talks about NIH or NIAID um, funding gain of function, Anthony Fauci has said to, to Senator um, Rand Paul, you, you don't know what you're talking about. All right. So who tell us how it actually was funded. Was it the PREDICT project that was funding it? Was it who's where, where's the pot of gold in this of who's funding what? Because I think that sometimes when people testify and they don't want to be found out, they get into the weeds. And if the person asking the question doesn't know what the correct question to ask, they're not getting the truth. So who funded who's first on the block in terms of the funding? Because if it's government money, foundation money, do you know if there's personal money involved? I mean, did 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 a wealthy billionaire sign, you know, give a check to, to Dashik? All of the above. And that's why the questions are so, so tricky. So from Equal Health Alliance's perspective, why I went I explained that tidbit about it being a nonprofit business and that yeah. they receive their money from a lot of different places. Equal Health Alliance can conduct work with two different revenue streams, essentially. So there is the profit that you make off each government contract or grant that you have, because we are profitable. Even though we're a nonprofit, we still have profits. And the other revenue streams are from donations from private foundations or high net worth individuals. So what the tactic was from Equal Health Alliance is that we're going to try to get as much free, unrestricted money from donors that we can. It's unrestricted. We can use it any way we want to. We can use it, use it to go throw $50,000 dinners for billionaires and get more money, or we can you know, go buy laboratory equipment with it. So that that's one revenue stream. Okay, so who are the billionaires that, that you that you know wrote a check to EcoHealth Alliance? So Tom Renz and I have some ongoing litigation related to that question, so I, I'm not going to answer that one. Okay, all right, and that was not in your book. Um, that, um, those names were not one of the things I let, left out of the book intentionally. Probably it could be double the length, but I can say this. So the, the if we're talking chronologically, how this starts. USAID PREDICT program brings Xi Zheng Li and Dr. Ralph Barrick together to start collecting the preliminary data, the samples, to start doing the first year of the gain-of-function work before Anthony Fauci is involved. So this gain-of-function work actually begins under USAID PREDICT before they've received a dime of NIH money. They use this these preliminary data as the argument or the justification of why NIH should give them money in their proposal in 2013. So they submit- and predict, predict my under, if my memory serves me correct, I think PREDICT was started in 2009? Yes, I think that the RFPs went out in 2008 and it's awarded in 2009, mm -hmm. as I recall. So at that point in time, it's under USAID, NIH has not put any money into it. And about what year did NIH start putting money into the PREDICT project? Um, uh, well, not the PREDICT project. They put it into their understanding the risk of back coronavirus emergence proposal. So PREDICT keeps on who's, running. Who's, who's, whose proposal? Is that the PREDICT project's proposal? Dr. Uh, Dr. Peter Daszak at Equal Health Alliance. So what happens is there's multiple streams of funding. This is the point that I was making. There are multiple streams of funding. If you were to look at a, a Gantt chart, if you're familiar with the Gantt chart, there are multiple timelines all overlapping of funding at the same time for the same work. This is te technically sometimes known as double dipping. 
It's, if you get into the details, it's not all double. It's not getting the, 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 that's not the point of this conversation. I know no, nobody cares about the gain of function work is being funded by multiple different entities at once. Okay, so Predict Project's getting money. Eco Health Alliance is getting money. Peter Daszak is in bed with Dennis Carroll, who oversees Predict Project at uh, USAID. It's the consortium of scientists that are involved in these 30 countries is being overseen by um, Johanna Mazitz, as I understand it, at the Predict Project, who is at the University of uh, California at Davis. Um, so you, you're, you're basically saying this is ground zero that these people were involved. Now, let's take the leap next for your position in this book. You claim that these people were involved in this work and this actually caused this global pandemic. Explain how you, how you what's the basis of that, that um, position? Sure, there's a number of key points. One that I like to uh, point out is that um, aspects of the spike protein were patented by Moderna and other U.S. scientists in 2015 and 2016 related to... Oh, the so, so you're saying that this, this work was being done and as a result of whatever happened during that period of time, 2015, they filed for a patent for a virus that would count, be a countermeasure to the work that they were... They, this Frankenstein work that they were doing in the lab is, is correct, and the, the and the genetic I, match is identified in the wild type strain in 2022, 2021. Excuse me. Say that again. So the wild, wild. It's not really wild, but that's what we call it in infectious disease epidemiology or disease ecology. We say the wild type strain, the one that's circulating out in the environment. So we'll assume that it's not lab made. When they run the sequencing on the wild strain, it matches these patent filings from 2015 to 2016. Genetic, genetic material in those patent filings trace back to Equal Health and Predict. So what is the purpose? I mean, this seems to be sort of the underlining engine to create an economic market for vaccinations that would benefit the pharmaceutical companies do the, are the pharmaceutical companies donors to the PREDICT project and to EcoHealth Alliance? EcoHealth Alliance's board of directors is heavily represented, or used to be at least heavily represented by the petrochemical industry and the pharmaceutical industry or consultants that work closely with both. Who sits on the board of the EcoHealth Alliance involved with pharmaceuticals? I haven't pulled the, the list down in a while and I didn't remember their names, but there are several. So when you were there at EcoHealth Alliance, um, were, the, were Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, Merck ever have a person from their employment sitting on your board? People that either worked closely with them or had relationships with them, meaning like a consultant or a lawyer that worked with the firm. This is serious. Yes, yeah. this is very serious. This is very serious. Um, you know, I, I recommend people read the book. You, you know, you, you get into your background. I mean, there's a lot of pages on, on your background, your military. Um, and thank, thank, again, thank you for your service. Um, and this is also it's it gets into what the, the end of it gets into how you have been hammered. Now, you have a theory uh, about 
why you've had drones all over your house and all kinds of you know goofy stuff happening uh, technology technically technically um, in your house and and it's it's one hell of a story I, I mean it's it's you were drawn to death um, and you know with your family and everything they don't want you to talk Andrew. no they, I mean the US government spent a, a pretty penny on trying to scare me intimidate me and then the overall plan of what they were trying to do is they were trying to have me committed um, which I, I catch wind of and th thank God that my psychology what do, you, what do you mean have you committed well so their tactic I identified was is that so later on I I positively identify the Michigan State Police the FBI and the Defense Intelligence Agency as being actors okay I catch catch them trespassing on my property physically okay so that puts it all into context about what my suspicion was so what they were trying to do is they were going to send the Michigan State Patrol out enough to my house when, because I was calling and reporting these as crimes, that they were going to say that I was crazy. But I actually suspected that about two or three months into this, and I went and met with a psychologist that I saw for intensive PTSD therapy in 2006. His name's Dr. Thad Strom. He's actually one of the VA's best psychologists in PTSD. Um, and I, I told him the whole story, and he's like, "Yeah, Andrew, I believe you. I'll write you a letter." So he actually wrote me a letter saying that I wasn't crazy uh, early on and I sat on it. And then when I discovered that the Michigan State Police, the FBI and the Defense Intelligence Agency are involved, I gave them all a copy of the letter. Well, at the same time, we file a lot, Tom Renz and I file a lawsuit for a billion dollars against these people. Um, and everything just sort of stops overnight. So this is a book people should read, The, the Truth About Wuhan by Andrew Huff. Um, Andrew, what did, you have also submitted a report in September. You and your lawyer, Tom Renz, have submitted a report in September to uh, people on Capitol Hill. Have they, what have they done, I, you know, before the election, you know, a lot of people don't want to touch certain things. Have you, has Tom been in touch with the senators and Congress members of Congress about this? And did you give it to Democrats as well as Republicans? Yes, we've, we've given to everyone that would take it. The Republicans, we were told shortly after we delivered it, called an emergency meeting on the Hill. And we had that from uh, multiple sources, which was comprised of both Senate and uh, congressional Republicans. They made the collective decision, we were told, to kick it, kick the can past the election, which turned out to be the wrong decision because the people who ran on COVID lockdown medical tyranny as a campaign platform won, and the ones who avoided it uh, barely were reelected or lost. Now, who knows what they're going to do? I, I, my offer still stands to help these people with any kind of investigation. I've given all these people my documents from the, the Senate uh, committee, permanent select committee on investigations, also for the House Intelligence Committee. I love my country. I'll do whatever it takes to to make sure that we get things right. I can't force people to do something that they don't want to do. Hey, do you do you think that this was a um, intentional leak, or, or or you think this was a mistake? I'm highly confident in my assessment that this was a laboratory accident. It's a leak. Uh, none of the evidence from a criminal investigation standpoint, it shows intent. 
Um, in fact, when this leak happens, it looks like the, the Chinese are engaging in behaviors like buying uh, containment equipment to get ahead of the leak and to plug the leak. And by then it's already too late and it's spreading around the planet. Um, their lockdowns in China were an attempt, at least initially in Wuhan, to, to stop the spread of the disease. And by then it was already too late. So, you know, President Biden just announced around Thanksgiving, um, I think it's $400 million more um, to, in fact, push for these COVID shots. He has kept the emergency use act in motion. He's now spending more money. It's, it's a booster campaign for six weeks. It's public. I mean, it's not, it's not that he's, he's not hiding this. I mean, it's, it's public knowledge. Um, we're at a war through NATO with Ukraine, with Russia. Okay. Um, you mentioned Ukraine, the Ukraine labs in your book. Explain that to the public, how that falls into this. Is it just one of those 30 countries where we had the, the predict project was doing their Frankenstein science? No. So this is a related program. And if you went high, high enough up in the U.S. government, there's a point where this predict program and another program called um, the chemical biological engagement program have common interests. Uh, so the chemical or the, stick to ukraine is is it is ukraine? I, am, I am so this is where i'm going so the, the ukraine labs are more of a part of um the defense threat reduction agencies campaign to mitigate biological threats in foreign laboratories i had worked on the program before i i was at eco health alliance so the idea is that by partnering with foreign laboratories you can one get those laboratories to conduct biosurveillance in the field for you for as basically a contractor for the US government so we can detect or identify emerging infectious disease threats to protect the military and Americans. The other idea is by forming these partnerships with these laboratories that it helps prevent these laboratory scientists from going rogue. So the big concern was after the fall of the Soviet Union was that former Soviet republics like Ukraine and the scientists there would go to the highest bidder for money. They might go work with the Chinese, Iran. So it's better for them to be doing business with us and become our allies. And this was a contractual program, programmatic um, way to do it, which was in big part done under what's called the Nunn-Luger Act, which President Obama was a big supporter of. Well, explain, but in the book, you, 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 you talk about how the, the um, what's the name of the company itself that it begins with NM. A metabiota. Metabiota, which is which is which is connected to the Ukraine labs that have surfaced during the course of this last year, that uh, between Ukraine and Russian war. Um, and you also say in your book that one of Hunter Biden's companies, I think Rosemont is is that the right one? Rosemont Seneca invests in Metabiota. They're a large investor into it. And everyone's heard about, I think, I think the audience might be familiar with Hunter Biden's investment dealings. Maybe All right. Well, well, so, so, so explain how that, why that's in your book. Well, it's interesting because I helped co-write the proposals for the, the CBEP program, the uh, Cooperative Biologic Engagement Program. That's what we're talking about here. So the partners on that, uh, those This is when you were at Eco Health Alliance? Correct. And I don't think Eco Health Alliance wins the bid on these. And I, I actually am subject to NDA on some of this, which I can't talk about. 
but the gist here is that a number of Beltway bandits, including EcoHealth Alliance and Metabiota, all partner to either work with each other as sort of frenemies on these big uh, defense contracts. To That's normal. That is normal in DC. Yeah, to 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 win the bid on these type programs. So Metabiota and EcoHealth Alliance were heavily uh, they were cooperating to to get these type of contracts. After I left, I, I don't know what the details of those contracts were, but it only stands to reason that they continue to do so as being frenemies. But in the book, you you allege that that uh, Hunter, one of Hunter Biden's companies, was an investor in um, in this in this Ukraine lab company. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I don't allege; it's a fact. Uh, Rosemont Seneca, Seneca invested in Metabiota. So the other funny thing is that. Um, going back to Incutel, the CIA venture capital firm. Well, so, explain, explain to the public about Incutel because, I, I, again, I don't think that the public even that's not commonly known. Yep, I agree. So, Incutel is actually a venture capital firm of the U.S. government, specifically the Central Intelligence Agency and sometimes the Department of Defense or Defense Intelligence Agency. They often invest in tech startups like Google Maps is one of their most successful products, or Google Earth. Um, so Incutel provided the investment to Google for Google Google Earth. And I think most people are familiar with that. Huge success. Sometimes they disclose their investments publicly like that one. Other times they don't. They invest in companies and it's secret. Um, we actually proposed at Equal Alliance the humanized mouse gain of function work to Incutel along with my uh, signals intelligence work to Incutel. I don't know if Equal Health ever received any investment uh, from Incutel. To my knowledge, they did not, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Our sister company, uh, Metabiota, received investment from Hunter Biden, but they also received investment money from Incutel, and that's available on Incutel's public. Uh, they disclose that investment for whatever reason. So here you have the CIA and Hunter Biden investing into this company that is doing this CBEP work in Ukraine and presumably other places. How many how many um, countries under the Predict Project at uh, at Eco Health Alliance? How many countries were assigned to Eco Health Alliance? I mean, were did some other sister companies have all thirty contracts in those thirty countries, or was it was was you know, so, how was the pie split? Well, for PREDICT, it was always contentious. So there are certain people who had to have certain countries. Uh, Dr. Dasik always had to have China. Um, and there are, so usually whichever partner had the most relationships with, we would make the argument that we should have that country. But each partner was always fighting for a bigger slice of the pie. So then sometimes we'd swap countries with the other companies based on what resources we had to, to had available, because it's also about being successful and also being profitable. Now, but in parallel to that, there were a number of other, other projects we had funded by either the Department of Defense or other agencies or private, um, private foundations that had us working and collecting disease samples in other countries. It wasn't just necessarily all under PREDICT, there were other government uh, agencies or private foundations paying for that work. How many other com how many other companies are there like EcoHealth Alliance? 
doing doing this this hunting for viruses specimens all over the world not many two or three what are their names metabiota is one um trying to remember who, who there's a couple others that have been acquired by beltway bandits really equal health alliance and metabiota are the two private companies and then most of a lot of it's academic um ap academic universities actually or, so i'm assuming columbia university is involved if they if they're taking some of the specimens to lipkin's lab at columbia university wouldn't columbia university be involved yes uh, usually as a uh, sub agency or as uh, not a sub agency but a subcontractor okay. yeah it just would depend on the, the details so you so so at the end of the day who actually owns this 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 data bank of specimens viruses whatever you want to call them in your world whoever claimed it and whoever negotiated the intellectual property agreements the best so so somebody's going to be making an awful lot of money off of this because because of the value of intellectual property correct correct so we tried to hold on to it and keep as much intellectual property for ourselves whenever we could and uh, who so, would be, who would be the customers that would buy that and pay a fortune to eco the eco health alliances of the world well would it be the pharmaceutical companies it comes later down the, the pipeline when it's biologics companies andrew huff what a story the truth about wuhan um i suggest everybody get it read it uh is there anything else you'd like to add andrew before we say goodbye you know, this is pretty, it's a pretty grim um, and sometimes, sometimes horrifying story. But I think what's important for everybody to know is that we've been through worse as humans. We're going to get through this. We just have to keep fighting and pushing towards it. Thank you for stepping forward. I'm certain that you will, you will get slammed. Um, I, I know that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits that will be involved. And, um, you know, Godspeed on, on, on the work because I know that you've been through a lot. And, the I, I, you know, when I... The, got to the end of your, your book and I'm reading about what happened to you speaking out. I, I just said, wow, this is a wild story. This is a wild story, but you know, clearly you have documented it. Clearly you have, you have, um, files. Clearly you've given it to, um, 57 page report you've submitted to, to people on Capitol Hill. It's going to be hard for people to ignore this story. And it certainly is going to be hard for the rest of the world to ignore this story because this was this, you know, nobody can deny that this wasn't a, a pandemic. It's the biggest tragedy. Plan, plan, planned or otherwise. Yeah, it's the biggest tragedy in human history and it's a fault of our <clears> own is Orwellian in, in a sense. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, and happy holidays to you and your family. Happy holidays to you, too.